would invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. If you're not really familiar with the Bible, you're not sure where that might be. If you uh, open your Bible pretty much in the middle, uh, you're probably going to hit one of the Psalms and they're numbered uh, chronologically. And so you'll come to uh, Psalm 69 there. The page is probably also printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, of the of the where the passages and the red Bibles and the chairs around you, uh, the psalm that we're going to be looking at today is we continue this uh, sermon mini series, taking a break from our study of First John. Uh, we're looking at a number of psalms that show us uh, who God is and through them who Jesus is, often referred to as messianic psalms. And although Psalm 69 is not usually one that people think of when they think of uh, an Advent psalm, I think we'll see that indeed it points us to Jesus Christ and does so clearly. The psalm is actually uh, a little on the longer side today, and so rather than reading the whole thing before we start, uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to read it as we go through the sermon. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it. And now as we look at Psalm 69, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Even as we read words that are somewhat difficult to hear. As we listen in on a man who is in distress and filled with grief. We pray, Father, that you would help us to know what we're supposed to take away from it. And more than anything else, Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him as he is, as our Messiah. And fill us with hope and encouragement and peace as a result. For we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Dr. Sharon Hirsch uh, was one at one time an adjunct professor of counseling at, uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And she tells a story about going on a missions trip to Cambodia. And she talks about the fact that she visited a little village that had a very interesting past. Now, I did a little checking this past week, and as far as I can tell, this has no connection with the MTW team that's been in Cambodia. It's a different village than the MTW team has worked with for some time. Uh, but she visited this little village that had a very interesting past. The village, people of the village, had strongly supported the Khmer Rouge when they were in power. And you'll remember the Khmer Rouge was an evil regime that controlled Cambodia in the 1970s. It was a totalitarian regime. It was repressive. It was incredibly violent. Under the leadership of Pol Pot, they were responsible for the torture and murder of up to a quarter of the entire country. 25% of the people was genocide by any definition. And the people of that little village that Hirsch went to go visit had been supporters of Pol Pot. They had been supporters of the Khmer Rouge. And the Khmer Rouge had been eliminated a long time ago, but the memory and the pain and the anger was still, even to this day, prevalent in places around the country. So much so that the people of this little village never go very far from home. In fact, many of the people that live there never leave the village for fear of their lives. To have been identified with Pol Pot and his regime in any way, like they and their ancestors had been, was to put your life at risk. 
And so they were seen as castoffs. They were they were seen as, as people who weren't wanted, who weren't accepted uh, as prisoners in their own land and hated because of the sins of their ancestors. And Hirsch went to this village and she says that as she walked around the village, it was an incredibly sad and somber place. As she watched the people, they looked discouraged and depressed. She said it was very hard just walking the streets of the village. But she stayed over the weekend. And on Sunday, she went to worship at the little village church. And when she got there, the place was packed with people. People wall to wall. And she says... That it was the most vibrant, reverent, joyful expression of worship that she had ever experienced. She said it was like being in a completely different place with completely different people. And she couldn't make sense of it. And so she asked one of her guides about it. Is this the way worship is always like here in this church? And he said, yes. Because these people believe that God is the only one who wants them. God is the only one who accepts them. And so they have given their life to him in worship and in service with all their hearts. Hirsch said that it was both heartbreaking and inspiring to be totally known and still wanted. They were experiencing true peace. Hirsch said that during the worship service, Psalm 69, verses 30 through 33 were read. I will sing praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. The people of this little village had experienced no peace in their life from the circumstances of life. But they had found a peace that passed all earthly understanding. A peace that truly transcended their circumstances of life. They found that by finding a peace and acceptance with God first and foremost. David wrote Psalm 69, and as he did, he wrote about his significant suffering and hardship and persecution, much greater than the villagers experienced. This is not a typical Advent psalm. It it actually sounds a little discouraging, a little depressing when we read it. It is a prayer of David. It is a prayer filled with anguish and distress. But in the midst of that anguish and that distress, David shows us a level of peace that doesn't make sense given the circumstances of his life. It is a peace that we will see that is anchored in the Lord as his Messiah. This psalm isn't just about David, though. This psalm truly is messianic. It will point us to the king who is greater than King David, to the son of David, to Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so today, that's what I want us to look at. I want us to see how this psalm is about David and how this psalm is about Jesus. And then we'll finish by thinking about what difference this makes for us.
So first of all, this psalm is about David. Now we see that in the first four verses, including the title that we're given right at the beginning, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? This psalm begins as David's prayer. It is a prayer of David calling out for help from the Lord. He is in distress. We don't know the specific details or circumstances about which he is writing. We're not given those details. But it's clear David is anxious, he is overwhelmed, and he is in distress. And he is crying out to the Lord for help. He says in verse 1 and the end of verse 2 that he feels like he was drowning. Like like his suffering and his grief and the persecutions and the trials that he's going through are like waves of an ocean that are crashing down on top of him. He says at the beginning of verse 2 that he feels like he's stuck in some kind of deep mire, something that's pulling him down below the surface. He's been crying out to the Lord, he says in verse 3, and he's weary from doing it. Even though he's been asking for help for some time, he says... He's not sure that the Lord has hurt him. The Lord certainly hasn't helped him. Those that have been attacking him hate him, he says in verse 4. And notice he says, they hate him without cause. They've made up lies about him. And they're unjustly attacking and hating him. This is a heart-wrenching prayer of a weary, anxious, distressed man of God. But as David continues to voice his heart, he moves from simply a prayer asking for God to help into what we might call a painful lament in verses 5 through 18. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. David's prayer 
for the help of the Lord to come and to rescue him moves into this place of a painful lament. To lament is a, a cry of grief and sorrow. And notice where David begins his lament in verse 5. He acknowledges the fact that, okay, this situation is not my fault. I'm being hated. I'm being persecuted without cause. But David says he knows he's a sinful man. Even though he may not have done anything to justify the persecution that he's getting in this particular situation, David knows that he is a sinful man, that he is a great sinner. He begins by confessing and acknowledging his own sin before the Lord. And notice in verse 6, even in the midst of his cry and lament, he's focused about the rest of God's people. He doesn't want other people to be hurt or to be harmed or to be distressed because of him. He didn't want to be a stumbling block to them. In verse 8, he is deeply sad and he's grieved that he's now alienated from his own family, from his own siblings, from his brothers. He tells us in verse 9 that he was focused on the house of the Lord. And as a result, those who hated God also hated him. And in verse 12, he tells us that he's grieved and he's saddened by the fact that the leaders of the city, even the drunks of the town, ridiculed him and mocked him. And we're going to come back to verses 13 through 18 in just a moment. But I want you to notice that right here in the midst of David's lament, in the midst of his cry of grief and sorrow, notice what he does in verses 13 through 18. He remembers the Lord's steadfast love. He remembers the Lord's saving faithfulness, the redemption that comes from the Lord God Almighty. Even in the midst of his of his lament, of his cry of grief and sorrow to the Lord, he comes face to face with the steadfast love and the goodness and the faithfulness of God, and he confesses it as well. And as we read those words, we begin to see David takes another turn in this prayer as we come to verses 19 through 29. David's lament of grief and sorrow shifts in these verses. Look at how his attitude and, his, and even his topic changes. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor and my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity. But there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before, before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. David's lament and grief has turned to what some commentators refer to as an imprecatory part of this psalm. Imprecatory means to invoke or to call for the judgment and the curses of God on one's enemies. 
David is calling on the Lord to bring judgment and curses down on some. Look at what he says in these verses, verses 22 through 25. Verse 22, he says, take the blessings that they have, God, and turn them into hardships for them. Verse 23, blind them and fill them with a continual fear. Verse 24, have your burning anger, God, be poured out on them. Verse 25, make their homes be destroyed and help them to experience what it feels like to be abandoned. This is a harsh prayer. There's seemingly no grace and mercy here. And we might wonder, how does what David is saying here jive with what the New Testament teaches us about loving our enemies, about praying for our enemies, about turning the other cheek, about not seeking revenge, about forgiving others? Commentators are actually mixed in their opinions of how to deal with this part of David's prayer. But I think what helps us is to recognize that what David is doing here is he's praying not so much a request for God to destroy his enemies. What he's doing here is more of a prophetic prediction of what will happen to those who refuse to believe God, who hate God. He's describing what eventually will happen to them. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's because these verses that are so harsh, are actually quoted twice in the New Testament. The first place is in Romans chapter 11. And there, Paul quotes these verses and applies them to the unbelieving Jews of his day. It's also quoted in Acts chapter 1, where Peter is uh, giving a sermon. And Peter quotes these difficult verses, and he applies them to Judas after he had betrayed Jesus. So what these verses are giving us are really a description of what will happen to those who refuse to believe the gospel. David's prayer here is a prediction. It's a promise of God's judgment that falls on all who hate the Lord, all who are not in a relationship with the Lord. That's the reason why he says what he does in verses 27 and 28. He says, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. This this psalm, Psalm 69 is a prayer from David that God would help him. It is a it is a painful lament as as David cries out in his grief and sorrow to the Lord. It is a a plea that the Lord would bring down judgment on those who hate the Lord. But I want you to notice that David makes another turn at the end of this prayer and he finishes it the way he should. He turns his eyes back to the Lord and he does so in praise and worship. Listen to what he says in verses 30 through 36. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people will dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name 
shall dwell in it. Even in the midst of this difficult prayer of David, as he recounts his need for the Lord's help, as he cries out in his grief and his sorrow, as he calls for God's judgment and curses to come down upon those who do not believe the Lord, David finishes, in the midst of all of that, he finishes by praising the Lord and giving Him glory. And notice the last three verses, he actually turns his attention to the entire world, all of heaven and earth, he says, everything in the seas and on the land, everything, praise God and worship and glorify the Lord. As he reminds them that the Lord indeed will save His people and provide an inheritance for them, a place for them to be for all eternity. So this psalm is certainly about David. It's about his life. It's about the circumstances and the hardships, the suffering and the persecution that he was experiencing. But this psalm is also about Jesus. Not in every way. Not in every verse. After all, we have verse 5. That is David disclaiming that he knows that he's a sinner in the sight of God. That doesn't apply to Jesus. But in many ways, this psalm points us to Jesus as the greater king and messiah. It's actually quoted and applied to Jesus several times in the New Testament. I've got them listed for you in the, the bulletin in your sermon outline. The first place is in verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. In John chapter 15, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he began to tell them what they were going to ex- what they needed to expect from the world after Jesus left them. He said the world hated me, and so it's going to hate you too. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not of the world, and so the world's going to hate you. The world persecuted me, and so if you're a follower of me, it will persecute you as well. Simply because of my name. After Jesus was telling them all of these things, he said those things were going to happen to fulfill the law. And then he quoted Psalm 69, verse 4. The world hated Jesus without cause. And so it will those who follow Jesus as his disciples. This psalm is about Jesus. Verse 9 of Psalm 69. For zeal, uh, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That verse is actually quoted twice in the New Testament. The first part of it is quoted in John chapter 2. It's a famous passage. You probably remember the story. It was the time of the Passover. Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And when he got to the temple, he looked around and it was filled with sellers of animals and other things. And John says that Jesus made a whip and he cleared out the temple with that whip. He poured out the money and he overturned the money changers' tables. And he told them to stop making his father's house a house of trade. John says there that the disciples were absolutely amazed as they watched Jesus do all of these things. And John says, and then the disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, the first part of it. For zeal for your house has consumed me. As they were watching Jesus defend the house of his father, they were reminded of the first part of verse 9. The last half of verse 9 is actually quoted by Paul in Romans 15. 
There he was writing about the fact that as God's people, we are to follow the example of Jesus in our lives. That those who are strong in their faith are obligated to bear with the failings of the weak. That we should not live lives that are focused just on pleasing ourselves, but that we ought to try to please our neighbors and to build them up, to bear their burdens. Jesus didn't live to please himself. Jesus took the burdens of his people upon himself. And then thinking about those things, Paul quotes Psalm 69, the last half of the verse, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, bearing the burdens of others. This psalm is about Jesus. We see it again in verses 20 and 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair, David says. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Verses 20 and 21, especially verse 21, are directly applied to Jesus in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 27... When they got to Golgotha, where they were going to crucify Jesus, they offered him wine mixed with gall. In Luke chapter 23, once Jesus was on the cross hanging between the two criminals, we're told that soldiers offered him sour wine and in doing so mocked him. And then in John chapter 19, just before Jesus died, we're told that some people took a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to him. And Jesus took some and then immediately said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in the midst of being mocked and ridiculed as he hung on the cross, Jesus found no comforters. All fulfilling verses 20 and 21 of Psalm 69. This psalm is about Jesus. And perhaps the greatest place that we can see Jesus in Psalm 69 is in verses 13 through 18. We see this incredible contrast between King David and the greater king that David pointed us to, King Jesus. David prayed for the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, to not, him, and to not allow him to be swallowed up by a pit. And God heard that prayer and answered it for David. Jesus prayed to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cross to pass him by, for him to be delivered from the cross. But God didn't answer that prayer. And Jesus went into the pit of the tomb. David prayed for the Lord not to hide his face from him and for the Lord to draw near to him and to redeem him. Jesus went to the cross and felt the weight of the anguish of a father who turned his face away from his son and forsaked him. David prayed to the Lord and acknowledged his steadfast love, saving faithfulness and abundant mercy. And Jesus went to the cross and demonstrated that steadfast love and saving faithfulness and abundant mercy. David prayed for the judgment and the curse and the wrath of God to fall on the enemies of God. And Jesus prayed on the cross to his father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then he had the judgment and the curse and the wrath of God fall on him so that his people would never have to experience it. This psalm is about David. 
But this psalm points us to the king that is greater than King David, to King Jesus. And it shows us Jesus as the true Messiah. And as we start to understand that this psalm is not just about David, it is also about Jesus. It brings us to the point of thinking about, well, what difference does this make for us? What do we take away from this? So what? Three things for us to consider today as we leave. First of all, this. The legitimacy of lament. One commentator put it this way, that David is giving us a picture here of sanctified lament. Of crying out to the Lord with grief and sadness and distress. David is not just being whiny here. He's not just complaining. He was dealing with true suffering and persecution without cause. And he expressed it to the Lord. It's a reminder to us that it is okay for us to bring our grief to the Lord. In fact, it's good for us to do that. And notice what David says in verse 19, the beginning of verse 19, as he's bringing his lament to the Lord. He says in verse 19, you know my reproach, God. How comforting that is to God's people. God knows what we are experiencing. God knows our pain. He knows our suffering. He knows our persecution. As Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The Lord knows our pain and suffering. Jesus experienced it far greater than we ever will. The Lord knows what brings us grief and distress. It's good to take those things to him in prayer. And as we do that, we need to remember how David did it. Go back and look at the language in the first 12 verses. David didn't hold back. The language here in these first 12 verses is serious and vivid and forthright. David didn't feel the need to hold back as he expressed his heart to the Lord. And not only that, David went to the Lord humbly by beginning with a confession in verse 5, recognizing that although these particular accusations and this particular persecution were unjust and without cause, he knew that he was a sinful man. So he humbly confesses that to the Lord. And notice in verse 13 how he prayed. What does he say in verse 13? As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. David is praying for the Lord's will to be done. David is praying with a sense of confidence that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord is in control. And he prays for the Lord's timing and the Lord's will to be more important than his own. How else does he bring his lament to the Lord? We mentioned earlier in verses 13 through 18, he pauses and he remembers the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of the Lord. Even in the midst of crying out and offering up his pain and his agony and his grief, he remembers the steadfast love and the saving faithfulness of his God. And he finishes the prayer the way it should be finished, by praising and worshiping the Lord. Even in the midst of his sorrow, in his grief. This is a picture of sanctified lament. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have to be afraid or or wary of being honest with the Lord when we are going through seasons of distress and sorrow and grief. And this season of Advent that we're in right now perhaps is particularly appropriate for this kind of sanctified lament. I know we think about Christmas and the joy and the, the, the fun that, thanks, that, that Christmas is. And that's, that's right. We should have those thoughts and feelings. But the season leading up to when we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior is a time of sober waiting, somber waiting, where we remember that our King is coming back. And until He does, we live in this place with the brokenness and fallenness of it. And so we cry out to the Lord and lament in our grief and our sorrow and our persecution. And we do so with a sense that it's right and it's good for us to do so. Secondly, God's people should expect suffering and persecution. That's what this psalm reminds us. God's people should expect suffering and persecution in this life. God's people have been experiencing those things throughout history. David experienced people hating him without cause. Persecution and ridicule for no reason. And Jesus certainly did as well. And Jesus told us as his disciples that if we follow him, we will experience trials and persecutions in this life as well. John Calvin, thinking about this reality from this psalm, says this, Let us therefore learn from this example to prepare ourselves, not only to bear patiently all losses and trouble, even death itself, but also shame and reproach if at any time we are loaded with unfounded accusations. Christ himself, the foundation of all righteousness and holiness, was not exempted from foul slander. Why then should we be dismayed when we meet with a similar trial? Life for Bible-believing Christians in this country has been relatively easy. Relatively peaceful, especially if we compare it to other places in the world and other times in history. Some have suggested that the relatively peaceful conditions that we have experienced are changing and not for the better. More persecution coming for God's people, more suffering coming for God's people because of following the biblical ethics. And perhaps that's right. But if so, the Bible tells us that that would just be more of the norm of what God's people have experienced throughout history. The question is not if or when we are going to deal with more persecution and suffering for following Jesus. The question is, how are we going to do it? Remember how David approached it here in Psalm 69. Again, verse 5, he came humbly. He came honestly about his own sin, about his own unrighteousness. He didn't curse God. He praised God as he ends this psalm in verses 30 through 36 by not only praising God himself, but by calling on all creation to praise God. He trusted in the Lord's providence in verse 13. Lord, in your timing, according to your will, according to your timing, do these things. I trust that you know what's best. And notice that his mindset, even as he was dealing with incredible suffering and persecution in verse 6, he was thinking about other people. 
He didn't want other people to be harmed or to be hurt or to be dishonored because of him. And look, in verse 8, he was experiencing alienation from his own family. When we go through suffering and persecution, one of the things that should be on our minds are others. And we should keep it. We should keep verse eight from happening from anybody in our church family, anybody that's experiencing suffering and persecution and, and and being slandered for the sake of Christ. They may feel alienated from their friends and family, maybe even from other brothers and sisters in Christ. But as God's people, we should rally around them and remind them that we're there with them in the midst of those sufferings and persecutions. We should expect suffering and persecution. Lastly, there is a real and a true peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. David certainly didn't experience peace in his life circumstances. But he did experience a peace with God through God's steadfast love and faithful saving and abundant mercy and redemption. We're in this season of Advent. It's a season of waiting for the arrival of God to come back again. To make all things new. To make things that are not right, right. To bring the new heavens and the new earth. And as we wait, we don't have to wait to know the peace of God. In fact, we must not wait. Just finish the sermon today asking you the simple question. Do you know peace with God. Do you know what it means to have peace with the Lord? After all, it's an important question to ponder because Psalm 69 gives us the warning of verses 22 through 28. This description that David gave of the judgment and the curses of God that will eventually come down on those who persist in their unbelief. The language in these verses is serious. It's meant to get our attention. For those who do not know the saving peace of the Lord God Almighty. David says they'll experience punishment upon punishment. Never getting acquittal from the Lord. Being blotted out of the book of the living. But there is good news. There is good news for any who today can say, I do not know the peace of the Lord. There is good news for God's people who, would, who do say that they know the peace of the Lord, but are feeling weighed down with the power and the shame of their sin. The good news is that the, the Lord has a steadfast love for all who turn to Him. There is abundant mercy for all who would go to Him and confess their sins. And as a result, there is a peace that passes understanding and passes our life circumstances. He is the one who is faithful to redeem his people in love and grace. Being in a relationship with the Lord does not make life easy. In some ways, it makes it more difficult. But what it does is it brings us a peace that this world cannot understand, that goes beyond our circumstances in life and helps us to persevere until King Jesus comes back again. Let's pray together. Our Father, every part of the Bible is your word. Even the parts that are hard to read at times. 
even the parts that we can't completely understand. And so we thank you for Psalm 69, and we thank you for David writing these words. We thank you for his honesty and transparency and his struggles. And we thank you most importantly because we see Jesus all throughout this psalm. Help us to remember the peace that is ours in Christ. Help us to rest in that peace. And even as we come now to the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would feed us again and encourage us again through the Lord's Supper. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.